On today's More Than a Test, we have Todd Grindle. He's the co-director of the Center for Learning and Development of SRI Education. If you've been to a conference lately about education, about technology, about efficacy, you've probably seen SRI on one of the banners. They're sponsoring just about everything. And Todd knows about just about everything. Listen in to learn more about the studies SRI is doing, some of the things they're finding in education and technology, and his recommendations for all of us. Hey, Todd, thank you so much for being here. Uh, it's a pleasure, Laura. Thanks for having me. Um, I, I'm actually going to start today with a quote. Um, unlucky for you, I am reading this book that I'm kind of obsessed with. It's about Kennedy and the, the moon and going to the moon. And I read this quote and it made me think of SRI and of you. And the quote is, um, the greater our knowledge increases, the greater our ignorance unfolds. And the reason it makes me think of you is before I came to Amira, I was an educator and I'd never heard of SRI. And now that I have heard of SRI, everywhere I go, every conference, you're on the banners, you have a speaker, like you're everywhere. And there's so much research happening there. So I wonder if we could just start with you kind of giving the lay of the land of what is SRI for those of us who are, um, our, our ignorance is still unfolding. Sure. Uh, well, it's, it's good to hear you've been encountering us. So SRI is a nonprofit research institute. Uh, we're primarily, our, our largest location is in Silicon Valley. We also have uh, locations across the country. Uh, but we've been around for 75 years. We began as the Stanford Research Institute. Uh, and we were the arm of Stanford that did lots of other research that couldn't happen within uh, the university. Uh, in the education group, we do a range of projects focused on students from birth all the way to post-secondary. I lead the Center for Learning and Development, co-lead the Center for Learning and Development within SRI. Um, and our work focuses on providing technical assistance and research and evaluation in three key areas. Uh, so the first is work related to young children. I think that's how we've connected on some of, some of those things before. Um, we also do work related to, a lot of work related to students with disabilities. In fact, some of the foundational understanding we have about the experiences of students with disabilities in schools comes from work done at SRI. And finally, our work focuses on student behavior in schools and how do we support teachers and students to support the social and emotional development of students within schools. Now, SRI education is about 10% of the Institute. And the other sides of the Institute are focused on, you know, big new ideas in biosciences, AI, video technology, um, speech technology, and they've done some of the fundamental innovations that I'm sure are sitting on your desk right now. The mouse, right? The mouse comes from SRI. Um, the internet started with three logons, one of which was SRI. Uh, Siri, if you have an iPhone, we made Siri, so the first virtual personal assistant. And one of the fun things in my job that I get to do is talk with those folks in the other side of the Institute who are doing this groundbreaking work and helping them think about what those applications might be to support students, teachers, and families in those areas that we talked about. That totally makes sense. Um, it's interesting because the very first sentence you said is exactly how I felt going through the SRI website. We do a lot of research. <laughs> and so it's nice that you have those three categories, but I, ha I wonder two things. The first is like why those three categories? And then two, when you're like looking at this landscape of there's so there's so many places you could be doing research, there's so many different questions you could be answering. How do you how do you possibly narrow down where SRI belongs? Yeah, I think across the institute we have folks doing a range of things, and and uh, you know we have people specializing in work related to multilingual learners, and 
uh, other folks doing work in post-secondary education. Uh, in our group, a lot of it has grown out of what I mentioned about those fundamental, those foundational studies of the experiences of kids with disabilities. It's where a lot of this comes from. And I think what we found in those studies uh, is that what we learn about the experiences of students with disabilities have applications kind of across students, right? When we can, and we can talk about this a little more, I think it's, it, it's really underlies a lot of what I do, is that uh, when, when we think about those children who have the widest range of experiences, it helps us realize how wide that range of experiences are for all children. And if we can design things, be they curricula or instruction or technology that can support students with disabilities, uh, it helps us support all students. Those principles there help us understand all students. And so that led into early learning. If we want to support students with disabilities or to help students um, maybe avoid special education and some of those disabilities, uh, we start early, right? And so I think that's pushed some of our, our research there. Uh, similarly, in the work and behavior, we see a lot of children getting excluded from school and not having those opportunities to engage with curricula and teaching and their peers for issues that are completely preventable if we provide teachers the appropriate supports and have a better understanding of students. Uh, so it's, it's sort of grown organically out of, those, out of those last 20 years since those foundational studies, but I think it comes back to that, that, that's that same core. I really love that I feel like what I hear you saying is like, if we can make it so that every child can have a positive experience at school, right? The kids who are usually on the, on the, on the fringe, if we can bring them in, we can bring everyone in. And I think that's really neat. Um, I, I have three-year-old twins and the stuff around behavior really, it really gets me because my kids are very different. And so much of the stuff that I'm reading is a lot of the behavior that we see at school comes from not sleeping enough. So I am like the sleep parent. My kids go to bed on time. If I do one thing right, my kids will have gotten enough sleep. Um, and it's so true that a lot of what excludes kids, there's things we could do about with some research. Um, we're kind of talking about your job as like a concept, but let's like bring it down for people. What's some research that you're involved in right now that SRI is doing that you re that really inspires you? Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of the work that I've been excited about lately is work that we're doing in partnership with policymakers and with practitioners. Sometimes people think of research as when well, you go off in a lab and you know you get your numbers and your statistics and you come back with some deep insights and then you write them up in a journal. And that's all well and good. I think that helps to move the knowledge base. It's not the stuff that gets me up and gets me excited every day. Um, so one line of work uh, that I've been particularly excited about is the set of partnerships we've been doing with the state of Arkansas in which the state of Arkansas has been doing for a, a decade now, revolutionary work to support children in early childhood, really kind of at the head of the game from a state systems perspective. Uh, and they've brought in us and partnered with us to provide that extra research help. And so we take questions from them, what's really driving practice and policy for them on a day-to-day -day basis, and we help get some answers to that. So. For example, we've been better understanding, working for them to better understand why students are in preschool continue to be suspended and expelled from school. Right? It's actually kids are suspended, preschool kids are suspended and expelled at higher rates than kids in K-12. I had no idea. It, it is. It's, it's a and this is, a, this is nationwide or this is just in Arkansas? 
Nationwide. And, and you know what is shocking to me about that is I know enough, at least in Colorado, we have a program called Colorado Shines where there's a limit on how many kids can be in preschool, right? You can't have more than I think it's 18 kids in a preschool, which still feels kind of large, but in a preschool classroom, because a lot of what I think happens with suspension is the classes are too big. But so what have you found? Why, why are we suspending preschool kids? I think to start, it's that teaching preschool is hard, is really hard work. And it requires so many skills. It requires, you have to understand development. You have to be able to relate to maybe 10, 15, maybe up to 20 students who have strong and intense needs and interests every day. The other is that that variation, that thing I talked about early on, there's so much variation in what it means to be three what you're able to do at three years old. And it's all okay, right? It's not, somebody's not behind and ahead. That is all just, just typical variation in being human at age three. And as a preschool teacher, you've gotta be able to manage all of that. And we ask people to do that at poverty level wages um, with really difficult conditions. Uh, so not in all cases, poverty level wages, but in a lot of cases, that's what folks are getting paid. Uh, and without a ton of supports. I think what the state of Arkansas has done and why we got involved with them is what we saw they were doing is they were getting out there and providing those supports. They were recognizing that this is a hard job. Uh, and so they need to provide teachers, not just a professional development session once a year. They need to provide regular ongoing professional development. Okay. So, um, what, let me understand something. So you've done this research, you found these things out, you've kind of like learned about what's happening. Do you then recommend to the state what they should do next? Do you write a report to a journal, like you said, or is this, is there somewhere that you put money like to other priests, other states for them to do preschool? Like what's the next step with SRI when they find yeah. these things out? So we do, we do all of those things. Okay. So first is we, we start with conversations. Uh, we don't as researchers at, at SRI and I think researchers, other play the people who are doing this well, we don't claim to have the answers. We have a set of tools uh, and some skills that we apply to helping get some, some answers. But so we can tell you a little bit, some ideas about what happened, but then working together to say, all right, so what? So what do we do now? What do we do about that? How do we make that better? That's a collaboration. And I find that those insights tend to come from those people who are closer to the day-to-day. -day. Those are the people who are talking to teachers every day, people who are talking and working with students every day. You give them the information and they've got the insights. You know what? If we could do A and B and C, I bet you we can make that better. Okay. So let me tell you something that I heard a teacher say recently. So um, I was talking to a teacher who uses a mirror, loves it, uses it in English and in Spanish, every child, every day. And I was talking with her, like I'm talking with you. And I asked her, I said, you know, there are teachers who aren't sure about using a mirror or they feel too overwhelmed. What would you tell those teachers? And she said, I don't have anything to say to teachers. I have something to say to the district leaders. I have something to say to the state leaders. Stop buying the programs that don't work. Stop just like throwing, tell, stop telling me to do five things. Let's get the thing that works and do that. How often is this the experience? To your point, the people on the ground have the answers, but the people above them are the ones making the decisions. And there's this gap and it's just like throwing things down on, you know, preschool teachers or in this case, a second grade teacher. Yeah. Um, I think we play, we see that kind of thing play out in that perspective from teachers all the time. Uh, I know I work with district administrators pretty regularly well, and I know that's a hard job, right? That, that schools are different within your district. Schools have different needs. 
uh, and the kids within those schools and the teachers in those in those districts may be in different places. And so they, they have to make some tough choices. I do think we see pretty regularly that this idea of a, a churn, all right, today we're going to do this, and next year we're going to do this, and next year we're going to do that, that's hard to do because it takes time to incorporate something into your practice, to make it, to, to make it fit with both the, the science of teaching, but the art of teaching. And teaching comes down to there is human interaction and understanding of these individuals. And tools help that. Tools are so important for that. Uh, but people take people need time uh, to be able to make that make that effective and make that seamless. And so I see that frustration all the time. I think the other frustration that we see from the the district administrator side, and this is more so recently, is teachers coming and going. That it's been hard to keep teachers, particularly since the pandemic. One of our studies for Arkansas, so we pivoted during the pandemic. We said, okay, we're going to study what's going on in the pandemic. We're going to get you information as quickly as you can. Um, and those, you know, those folks were really struggling and for really legitimate reasons, we're leaving the field. So we provide some training, we provide some supports, we get new folks in there the next, the next year. I tell people all the time, a couple of years ago, like right after the pandemic, the number one thing district leaders wanted to talk about was the learning loss. And now I would say the number one thing is teacher retention, that they're having such a hard time keeping teachers. All right, I wanna ask two more questions about what you said around the Arkansas thing, and then we'll move on. So the first is, you know, you said we need to give people time to get used to something. How, how long? How long would you say, hey, if you're gonna start an initiative, give teachers six months, four years, like what, in just your recommendation based on what you know, obviously it would depend on the, the initiative and what they're trying to implement. Well, I think I might put it back to you all is that I think there's something on the design side too that uh, different uh, supports, tools, interventions, curricula can take shorter or lesser time to integrate into your classroom. Um, and I, you know, we're, as I think I can say here, so we are doing some work in collaboration with Amira as part of a grant from the Institute for Education Sciences. Uh, really exciting work relating to helping do more engagement with Amira at home and broader, more broadly integrate that into to kids every day. Um, and I, I do see in the way you all design things, an effort to make this straightforward for teachers, uh, to have some understanding of what the, the reality of the classroom is. I mean, that's a lot of what we've talked about in this project. Okay, what are teachers dealing with? What are parents dealing with? What is the right timing? And how far do we, how much, how much can we ask? of teachers. So I think it's on developers um, to be thinking about this. What is, how can we make this easy and straightforward to take up? How does this tool make your life as a teacher, as a parent, as a student, how does it make your life easier rather than put a burden on top of what, already, what is already a very hard job? And I think we do that by listening. Uh, we do that by listening to teachers and spending time with them, not just dropping things on them and saying, all right, go ahead, this is gonna work. And if it doesn't work, it's your fault, right? I think I see that a lot from, yeah. uh, from folks who are developing curricula or different interventions in schools. And that's not the case. If it doesn't work, we got to figure out some other way. Some, there's, there's something missing, right? Because we had some good theory. We have, if our theory's right, um, there's some other step we're not getting in how you engage with the material. Uh, so I think it can be quick. I think it can take forever. Um, and I think getting to the getting to that right place is uh, is mostly the job of the folks who are designing and making the curriculum. 
Um, it's really nice the way you paint that picture of our experience, because I know for your team, every time we come to a meeting, I'm like, okay, but the teachers, we have to talk about the teachers. I'm sure they're ready to go crazy with me because all I care about is that the teachers, like as they're doing these experiments with us are well taken care of because I've been in a classroom and I've helped with research before. And I know what it's like to have, you know, kind of the ivory tower coming down on you saying like, get these things done. And so um, it's nice that you feel like that's a positive experience. That makes me feel better. All right. My last Arkansas question. Um, like I said, I have three-year-old twins. They're very different people. They haven't been suspended yet, <laughs> but I'm, I, I wonder, do you have any advice for me as a parent based on that research that like to ensure that my children aren't being removed from school, or if they could be a better participant in their class based on what you learned, what can families do? What can I do? One of the things we found is that um, this is both true in our Arkansas work and then we see in work in other places is that suspension and expulsion happen a lot less when there is a, a dialogue between families and programs and teachers when they're regularly communicating. Um, because then as a teacher, you can understand, you can understand that behavior. The behavior is communicating something. Um, and when you know a little better of what they're communicating, what they're working through, then you've got solutions as a teacher that aren't, you just got to go home. I'm just not dealing with you today, right? Uh, and so we have definitely found, we ask, you know, we do a variety of statistics and all kinds of complex stuff where we put this information next to this information. And we have very much seen that those teachers who report having lots of communication with their families, good relationships with the families, they're ready to solve problems, to solve, work through those challenges by keeping the kids in schools. If that's broken, then and there's no partnership there, then they're much less willing to do Well, so. and I'm sure the pandemic broke some of that partner, those partnerships. Like I think about my school mm -hmm. on a pretty regular basis, we hear, you know, cause my kids started during the pandemic, um, like, Hey, we aren't doing this yet because of COVID policies, right? We're bringing this back now that COVID, you know, like now that we've be, moved beyond that, like, so we didn't have as many parent nights and we didn't have as many things in person because of the pandemic. So I wonder if there's, you know, preschools are still trying to like rebuild those relationships and those, those places where they did have those connections. Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the, the, the clear safety protocols that was in almost every preschool in the country is parents aren't coming in anymore. You drop, drop them at the door and then we'll take them from the door. And to some extent, that's a little easier on the teachers because that transition, that it's, a little, it's a little easier for them to make that transition. So something was gained and we see many programs that have held that. Like, nope, we're dropping off at the door. But what is lost is... That, that connection, that person-to-person -person connection between parents and, um, and teachers where, here's, a, here's a, something that I often look for is do teachers refer to parents by their names or do they call them the parent, right? You call them by a name, that's a human. That's a human that you know and you care about that person in some way. And that happens, that happens, you come together at that, at that threshold of the door, you walk in and they know you're Laura. You're not just the mom, right? Yeah, that's totally true. And I'm now thinking my preschool definitely does call me Laura. So yeah. interesting. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let them know that that means something to me today. Um, okay, so um, a couple more things on SRI. So we talked about this thing in Arkansas, but you also mentioned that part of the reason you and I connect is SRI is helping us with some research around parent connection. So we have an app that teachers use at school um, and, and children use at school. And then there's reporting at school, but we're now adding this component where parents can kind of be a part of this. And what's really exciting is part of the way Amira works is children read out loud to it, to the app, and then teachers get a recording. And now parents can get a recording of their child reading, which 
Um, if you don't, if you've never had an experience like this, it's kind of like at night when I go to bed, um, I put my kids down for bed. And the first thing I do is start looking through pictures as soon as they're down. Right. Like I already miss them despite how crazy our bedtime is around here. Um, and it's the same thing. Like, it's just so nice to hear their voice. Like they're so fun to listen to and to get to see what reading is like and really understand. Um, I'm curious though, you know, what other tech, either if you look on your website, there's a lot of stuff around technology and families and, and early learners. And I'm just so curious, like what's, what are some things that you're learning about technology? technology and education, um, and, and early learners, like what, what are you coming away with and what's really interesting to you right now? So as I said before, SRI is a really unique place in which we have this deep education expertise embedded within an institute that is doing the very latest cutting edge research in all of these areas of technology. Um, and we've been able to bring those together for a number of exciting things. I have a colleague, Naya Lazier, who's been doing work for the National Science Foundation, where we can use computer vision technology to actually measure the level uh, and, and productivity of collaboration between students in middle school classrooms. So teachers can get information Right, about how well students are collaborating with one another without having somebody sit there with a pencil and code it all day. Right. The computer is able to give them that information. That's tremendously exciting work, I think, because what it does is it gives information back to the teacher in a low-cost, really efficient It's not replacing the teacher. None of the work that we want to do is that we are doing is looking to replace teachers. What we're looking to do is to make that, make that connection, support teachers in, in doing those things that are uniquely human. So sometimes we think about uh, education learning as being this engagement between um, student, teacher, and content, right? I think it's a triangle. Um, and what we try to do in our work, in all of our projects, and one of the things that really drew me to Amira and wanting to work with you all, is we're not saying, okay, we're gonna cut out the, the teacher and we're just gonna make this student to content. What we're saying is we want to make that connection between those three things. We want to make that stronger. Um, and I like that, that that's what I see Amira is doing. And I think that's what we've been working on as we've prepared. We've invested a lot of time and with thanks to the Institute for Education Sciences to do that, to understand what do teachers need, right? You, you know what Amira can do with students, but what do teachers need? What's going to help them? What do parents, now what do parents need? What's gonna help you as a parent do, um, do the things that you, that, you, that you want for your children that fit in with your life? I'll mention one of the, I think it's okay to talk a little bit about what we found, but one of the key insights that I think we heard early on as we listened and talked to parents is they all very much wanted their children to be strong and competent readers, but they don't wanna be the teacher. Because we heard so many times, every time we sit down and I'm the teacher, something doesn't go right. Whether I'm trying to teach them to hit a baseball or I'm trying to teach them, you know, how to do something in the house or I'm trying to teach them to read. When I'm the teacher, that, that has not worked well. And so we took that and said, okay, how can we bring all of the strength of what you all have been doing for years with Amira, help provide parents with something that connects with the the way they want to interact with their child, the way they're successful with their yeah. children. Um, and so we try to do that across our work. So we have other things in the, we have a, a set of initiatives that are measuring teacher speech. 
um, and providing automatic annotation of our teachers asking different types of questions, open-ended questions, that providing praise for process rather than product, things like that, to give the information back to the teacher, not to measure the teacher and call that a good or a bad teacher, but to provide that information back so the teacher can say, oh, okay, there's some areas where I can get, I can get better, I can make my practice stronger. Um, and so that, I think that across a, a range of really interesting initiatives that we're doing, that's the principle that drives it. That's the question that we ask every time we connect uh, on one of these projects. Okay, there's a couple of questions that come up for me. So the first thing you're saying, you know, not to not to tell us it's a good or bad teacher, but to give them the information. Do you ever get in a situation where one of the partners wants to use whatever you're getting, whatever you're doing for something that you don't necessarily agree with? Like in this situation, it might be someone who does want to use this to rate teachers, right? We want to use these this automated recording to say, hey, this is my good teacher, this is my bad teacher, not to coach. Uh, it is, um, so as a, as a research institute, rather than being academics, it's, uh, it's sometimes a challenge for us. So in our work, um, sometimes we're doing things as a contract. We will be hired by, maybe it's the federal government or state government, but also by commercial entities. Um, and we have had projects where we got some pushback. They wanted to say that, you know, maybe to say that the findings were a little stronger than they were, or to use those findings to say something that we didn't think was appropriate. Um, and we stick close to our guns on those uh, because our value as a partner um, is that we're credible and we, we are independent of the development. So we, we always have, and we put it in specific contractual language about you know, here's, as we present our findings, these are the principles we follow as we present our findings. Now, sometimes, that said, you put something out into the world um, and folks do things with it that you really wish they hadn't. I mean, and I had this early in my career, I can talk about it now, I did a, a study of special education uh, for the Houston Independent School District. Um, and I stand by all those findings that we put in there. I, those, the data analysis were absolutely right. We did not spend enough time saying, here's what you shouldn't do with these data analyses. And we came back and looked 10 years later and you know, were really, in many ways, kind of disappointed in, in what, that, you know, what that was done, what they did as a result of that. Uh, so the lesson learned for me was to, as you describe, be very clear, not just about what you found. The data never speak for themselves. The idea that the data speak for themselves is wrong. People look at the data and see all sorts of different things. We try now to be clear about, here's what we think is a good idea, here's what we think is a bad idea here. Uh, I'm assuming you won't tell us what they did with the data? It's actually public. It was, uh, um, uh, it was the subject of lots of later investigations. Basically, we said that their rates of special education identification uh, were quite high for uh, students of color. Okay. Um, and they they not in a in a formal official way but in an informal way said okay we're just not going to identify kids for like special kids. education anymore and that's not right that's not what we wanted them to do yeah we wanted them to work to take the bias out of the system I, rather than say okay we're not identifying yeah I, I think we you know in boulder colorado had a very similar situation if you look it up there's a, a ton of research around this too that students of color were being way over identified and they're they're still working to kind of pull that back so i'm not i'm not surprised um and thanks for being candid about that okay last question on sri um 
So I did some research. I was looking at some of the other companies that you've done similar research, like with Amira. Of course, I am super biased because I love Amira. Um, and I was like, oh, come on, SRI. Like, they're not as cool as we are. Has there been a partner? And you don't have to name names, obviously. But have there been times where you're like, oh, we thought this is this is going to be cooler than it was. Or there's a little more promise here than is actually here or, or anything like that as far as with technology in particular? Sure. Um, so one of the frustrating things in, in this work is that most of the things you test out uh, don't show effects. They don't. Actually, moving the needle on, on teaching and learning is incredibly hard. Uh, and so often our feedback to folks, and we have to be really clear, like here, here were the methods, here we go take the most rigorous methods we can, and we, we find that it doesn't have an effect. Um, and so, you know, I think that's, that happens fairly often. Um, and for us, we have to be really careful not to get excited when we see a positive effect and disappointed. That's not our role. Our role is to, to collect that evidence, to interpret that evidence and, and provide it back. Um, so it is not uncommon that we try something out that looks great. Um, and uh, we, you know, we don't see, we don't see impacts. There have been, I do also though, get excited and really proud to be a part of things where we have seen impacts. So one I'm happy to mention is we have a longstanding relationship with PBS Kids as part of the Ready to Learn program. Um, and I did a study a few years ago on the Cat in the Hat, the Cat in the Hat television show. Season three of the Cat in the Hat was really focused on, if your kids haven't seen it, it's great on focusing on supporting kids' science and engineering skills. Um, we did a long study, a random assignment study, and found, lo and behold, it actually worked. And that was one where I didn't expect it to work. I was like, come on, it's a TV, it's a TV. show. Right? <laughs> it's a TV show. Uh, um, and when those came back, I was like, huh, it actually works. I think I have seen some of that research as part of what we've done with Amira, things that you've seen and, and ways that you've done the studies. That, that makes a ton of sense, and it's nice to hear that connection. Um, and the effect size thing, I, we hear about all the time in Amira. Um, I won't name names, but there was a state that recently went through an approval process and the big approval piece was around effect size and then only Amira was approved, right? They had all these reading programs and because of our effect size, only Amira was approved. This next year, they've now pulled that back because people want to use things that don't have that. They, they want something that's easier or whatever. I'm not sure what they want, but it, it's, it's a hard, it's a hard sell. There's so much out there. So it's interesting to see your experience kind of paralleling mine. Um, but I want to move on to you, um, Todd. And so I, I'm, I, we said it in your bio, but I, for everyone who doesn't know, you have, you have two degrees from Harvard. Um, and right before this podcast, about a week before you sent me an email and you were like, Laura, before we talk, I think there's something you should know about me. And I wonder if we could start this conversation by having you, you share what you shared with me via email. Sure. Um, so I know this is a conversation we're going to talk a lot about reading. So I wanted to share that f from the conventional perspective of reading, I'm not very good at it. In fact, I'm terrible, because uh, I'm dyslexic. And what that meant for me early in school is um, I really struggled. In fact, I, I struggled throughout elementary school. Um, it was often came out as behavior. It's, it's much better as a child, at least in, you know, in the late 70s, early 80s. It was much better to be bad than dumb, right? And so if I could show myself as one of the two in the classroom, I was going to take bad, right? You can make friends if you're bad. You <laughs> Uh, and so for many years, didn't tell anybody. It was a secret that I was dyslexic 
because we knew what that was going to mean was stigma and segregation and low expectations. And there was nothing good happening out of that. And I, I would try every year. First out, I'm not going to go to a new school. I'm not going to let them know that I'm dyslexic. I'm going to fake my way through. And pretty quickly, I would wind up in a substantially separate special ed class um, where I just didn't get much done. You know, there just right. wasn't much happening there. Um, I was really fortunate, I think, that uh, I found some ways to connect to school. I found some things to get excited about at school. I wound up going to an arts magnet school. So I had a reason to keep going. Um, and like a lot of dyslexic kids back in the 80s, I developed all sorts of compensatory strategies. Yeah. Um, so I was a pretty social kid. And so what I would do before class is... I'd talk to everybody and see what was in the reading. And I, my strategy, I could, I could extract one thing. And as soon as class started, I had my hand up and I had something to say. And if I could say something at the beginning of class, well, they believed I'd read that, right? Um, so that was my experience through um, high school, even through undergrad. And in fact, it, and then I went on, I became a teacher. You know, you talk to teachers and there's many of them, there's two reasons people become teachers. They loved school and they never wanted to leave where they hated school and they're going to make it better. Mm-hmm. So I was the other one. I hated school. I was going to make, I was going to do it right. I was going to yeah. make it better. Um, and so I went from teaching uh, to the graduate school of education at Harvard. And in my first semester, very early on, one of the teaching assistants pulled me aside. They're like, you're dyslexic, aren't you? Cause they know, right? right. They're experts they're... <laughs> in this. Of course. And they, and they said, it's not something to be ashamed of. In fact, we've got all these tools now that can help you. These tools didn't exist in the 80s when I was a student. So um, as I as I got went through school and even now, I use a screen reader. The screen reader helps me to get through the mountain of emails and peer-reviewed reports that I have. Um, if I have long things that I need to write, I use uh, a voice-to-text technology and then go and clean it up. So when we started this conversation, you were talking about, you know, a lot of what has informed the research at SRI is students with disabilities and being able to create an environment that is for them and for everyone. It it sounds like this, this, this journey, that journey to be at SRI started with you. Is that true? Is that part of like your inspiration and how you show up to work every day is, is that kid in the eighties? You know, if you push a, if you push a researcher, I don't care what what field it is. Research is always me search, right? Everybody's <laughs> always everybody's always trying to figure something out about themselves. So absolutely, and I I I think as I do this work, I both keep uh, my myself and my colleagues' experiences when I was a teacher. Those are with me every day when I do this work. But I also think back to those substantially separate special ed classrooms and my peers, my friends in those classrooms, and their experiences and my experiences, uh, and wanting to make sure that we don't need to do that anymore. There's better yeah. ways. There's better yeah. ways to go like this. So I'm going to tell you something. I, we did a podcast with Steve Carnavale, who is a founder of the Dyslexia Center at UCSF recently. And he, the reason he got involved is his son has dyslexia. Um, and one of the things he said was, you know, we were talking about a lot of people. Uh, Gavin Newsom I, was someone I didn't know who has dyslexia as well. Um, all these people who are, are have dyslexia. And he said... You know, there, there seems to be something that people with dyslexia also have these like entrepreneurial mindsets to your point, like they find ways to kind of hack the system, right? They can't read. So I'm going to figure this out. And, and that seems to be your experience for you and the other people, you know, who have been identifying with dyslexia. Is that true? 
I, in some cases, yes. I think it's more of a nurture rather than a nature thing. Okay. I think it's you, you figure out your ways to survive and to, to find value in yourself, right? Uh, and you, you don't develop this. I certainly, I think, had that entrepreneurial mindset. And I started little businesses when I was a student. Uh, but also that way of like, here's how I'm going to get through undergrad, right? I'm going to form study groups. I'm going to be the one who convenes them. I'm going to ask some questions. I'm going to listen real closely. Um, because that's what you need to, that's what you need to get by. And I wonder now as students come through and they, they have a couple of things that I don't, I think I didn't have, right? So we have much earlier support and detection to remediate and support kids on the basics of reading early on. I didn't have that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, there was, we were going to do read alouds in class and you catch on and you don't catch on. I right. didn't catch on. And not only did I not catch on, I hit it. And made sure that nobody else was going to know about this. Um, and that's different now. We have tons of tools and support and understanding from teachers. And, and I think we've seen for many students, if you start early with solid instruction in reading, you can help to, if not completely eliminate, you can at least ameliorate, right? You can make it a little better and a little easier for kids to engage in written text. Uh, and then I think the other thing we have are, are these tools, screen readers and other accommodations that today, I'll be honest, it, it does not feel like a disabling condition at all. Not at right. all. Um, and I, I don't experience it in, in that way. So I wonder, kids coming up now, whether you'll see the same thing, the same sort of like, I'm going to work it out, entrepreneurial mindset, because uh, we've provided the tools and supports that, that really maximize those opportunities to participate in the way that other students are participating. You know, right before I, I started at Amira, I was leading a middle school um, of really high-performing students. It was, it, for, we were a charter school. We just attracted these students who were often identified with gift, as gifted. Um, but they also often were twice exceptional. So a lot of them had dyslexia. And the amount of really interesting 504 accommodations that came through. And honestly, like we've gotten really creative about what can be out there for kids. So I think that's that's true. But if you were talking to a parent whose experience is not creative 504s, if it's, if it is still, you know, these classrooms that are, are pretty, are not as well designed and their child has dyslexia, what advice would you give a parent? What, what questions should they be asking at their school? What should they do? So as a out dyslexic, I get these comments <laughs> all the time. They come from my colleagues and their kids and their cousins and so on. So I have these conversations pretty frequently. And obviously the, what you recommend depends a little on how old they are. You know, if we're talking about somebody's identified early, so let's think about what we can do to get them some some early intervention to, to see how far we can move them along. For those kids who are a little later, often, you know, I'm, when I'm talking to folks, children are in middle school and they're struggling and they're struggling to find a connection to school and to self and feeling pretty bad about themselves. You know, a lot of kids with dyslexia, they drop out of school. They drop out of school because school is not a friendly place for them. And so one of the pieces of advice that I give is find some reason to care about school. Maybe you love soccer, right? Maybe you want to play in the band. Maybe there's an arts program or a speech program, something that does not require printed text that you can be good at and that you can love. That's going to keep you, maybe it's going to evoke school, going to evoke tech school. Right. It keeps you going to school every day and feeling good about yourselves. Start with that. And then let's think about what are those accommodations that can minimize the impact of dyslexia. So that's often the conversation I have because when folks are talking to me, 
it's usually because the, the kids are feeling pretty bad about themselves. Right. Um, and that is a hard thing. You know, adolescence is challenging in the best of circumstances. Uh, but if you're every day encountering an institution that's telling you you're, you're not up to it, you're no good, it's, you know, it's doubly hard. Uh, so we often start there. Yeah. You have just one of the most inspiring stories. I'm so glad we did this. I didn't know everything about you and, and, the, and your journey, even though I can kind of expect it because I would say like my experiences in these groups with you, you are always the collaborator and the person bringing in all the voices and, and kind of like finding space. for. So like you've got good practice at that of like bringing your study <laughs> groups together and, and it shows now. But when you look at this journey, right, not the easiest childhood, definitely had to find some ways to hack the system and then finding some solutions now. And, and you lead this incredible program at SRI. Like, what gives you hope? Like, what is the thing today that you're like, this is this is exciting. This is thrilling when you look at um, education and technology and, and what we're doing for kids. So I think there is a greater understanding of the idea that there's no such thing as average. That's what gets me excited. But there is no average child. Um, and that children are have strengths and challenges in different areas. And there are all sorts of ways from pre-K all the way to post-secondary that folks are, are taking that idea and applying it um, to, to better differentiate what kids' experiences are, that they're applying principles of universal design, giving kids multiple ways to express themselves, multiple ways to show what they know and to, to engage with content. Um, and I think that that coupled with the, the advances in what we can do with these kinds of tools, with tools that are based in computers and smartphones, um, I think are gonna open up opportunities for kids who you know, in the 80s when I was a student, we're just kind of getting left behind. They were labeled as, you know, kids who are not smart or not going to make it or bad kids. I think we can move beyond that. Uh, this yeah. binary, we got strong kids and weak kids. We got kids with lots of different strengths and challenges. And we can, as schools, as educators, uh, we can find ways for them to, to maximize what they're good at and support those things where they need more help. So much of the research that we're hearing from neuroscience is saying exactly what you're saying, that like what we're learning about brains is like, we don't all have the same brain and let's do it differently because of that. Instead of trying to like put us all in one lane, let's learn about our brains and really figure that out. So it's cool to see it in your experience as well. Um, okay, so we're running out of time. So we've got five questions that we ask every single right, guest. Um, the first one's probably the hardest. So just so you know, so our podcast is called More Than a Test. The reason we called it that is because at Amira, we're really trying to push the envelope on what people believe student assessments can be, right? That uh, it can be a, an everyday thing where we're learning about what children can and can't do and how to support them. But more than a test means a lot to a lot of different people about kids and about teachers. So I'm curious, when you hear those words, more than a test, what did it mean to you? <laughs> I thought about it, actually, when I got that. Um, well, I certainly think, I think the first thing that comes to me is that we understand somebody's value as a student, as a learner, and something that's way more than a test, definitely more than a single <laughs> test, but that tests in general. Yeah. All right. One piece of technology that you're really excited about. Oh, ChatGPT. Uh, <laughs> uh, what have you done? Tell me something cool you've done with ChatGPT. I use it every day. 
What did you ask it today? Uh, <laughs> it is my uh, virtual research assistant. Okay. Um, and so I come to it with a range of questions. And the way I've been thinking of using it is the same way that I often work with research assistants. I will, and so I, I work with research assistants every day and often I say, okay, I'm interested in this. I'll tell you what I've been interested in. I'm really interested in how extreme weather, climate change disrupts the provision of preschool services, right? See these floods, fires all the time. What happens to the preschools? Um, and so typically what I would have done six months ago is I would have said, okay, research assistant, here's my question. Can you look up some research on FEMA and preschool and provide me a set of sources. And now I type those questions into ChatGPT and it gives me, it gives me really useful information. Now, just like a research assistant who's new in their career and maybe not has the full range of expertise, I don't take that, copy it and put it into a report. I take a look at it and I vet it. I think about it. I say, was that right? I'm not sure that that's right. And ChatGPT is wrong sometimes. Yeah. Um, but it, what I have found is it helps me, it's a, it's a kickstart for yeah. me. And it is saving me time in some of those things. I'm gonna have to look this up and where's that information and where's that coming from? Uh, and I think we are just scratching the surface of how we can use this at work and at school. I know there's some efforts and uh, folks listening to this may be mad at me to ban the use of it or block it on machines. I think that's, that's silly, right? I mean, I, I use my calculator every day. It's not yeah. cheating, right? I use my screen reader every day. It is not cheating. Uh, yep. and I think the same thing is true, will soon be true with, with ChatGPT and the dozens of things that are already <laughs> come out and com competing with it. Right. All right. Great. Um, okay. So think about this. You are going to be asked to, you know, tell the future of America. You're going to be doing a graduation speech. You get to give one piece of advice. What is your one piece of advice? <laughs> Aside from wearing sunscreen, which is always, um, <laughs> always the best advice. Um, just to stay curious. Yeah. Great. Curious, and then no matter what your, your field is, like if you are curious and I find that in, in my field, those folks who are curious, genuinely curious about those things, those are the folks who are moving the field and are happy in their work. Okay. And then tell us about a reading moment in your life, a moment that you remember reading and, and that was like pivotal for you. So not a favorite book or... That's going to be your last question. One book that everyone should read. So the one before that is, think about, I mean, for you, it could be the moment someone, you know, the person at Harvard told you there are all these resources, but... Yeah. No, I, I think that's, that's absolutely it. It was... Uh, the Access Disability Services uh, coordinator at Harvard who gave me my first screen reader. Do you remember their name? Eileen Berger. Yeah, um, I absolutely remember her name. Aww. Eileen Berger, she was amazing. Uh, and she actually, at the time when I was first at Harvard, we still got books, right? We had printed <laughs> books. She took my book, chopped the spine, copied each page, digitized them, and gave it to me on a file. And wow. gave me a screen reader. And she said, here you go. She did it all in like two days. It was amazing. That is amazing. That is above and beyond. All right, last question. One book everyone should read. Um, so despite being dyslexic, I am an avid reader. So at least like a book, two bucks a month, they're all right here, right? They're all on my phone. Um, I love the book. This may be particularly for parents, but called Far From the Tree by Andrew <gasps> Sullivan. No one talks about this book. I'm obsessed with it. I tell people, I hand this huge book to people all the time about all the different conditions kids have. Yeah. You are making my whole day. Okay, sorry. Tell me about it. <laughs> uh, it was revolutionary for me to think about this idea of, so he talks about this idea of identity. And I mean, you know this, Laura, but that many identities are things that we pass from parent to child. 
racial identities, sometimes religious identities, things like that. But there's other identities that where the children and the parents are in different places, disability being one of them, but there's others, right? There's, there's LGBTQ, right? That's often like different from parents to children. And it was just such a careful and thoughtful understanding of what that means from the parent perspective, what that means from the child perspective that fundamentally changed how I parent and how I, how I engage with people in, in the world. Uh, I think about that book. It's more than 10 years ago that I read it, but at least once a week, I come back to some story from that book and I'm like, you know, I want to remember how that experience was and what that felt like. When I was a principal, I used to pull it out. Like we would have a student who was like, came to us and was, you know, had, was deaf for the first time. Right. And I would, I would get that chapter and I would give it to the teacher and be like, you need to read about this family first. Right. Or um, in all of the, so what people don't know is like every chapter is a different sort of experience, lived experience. And you see the experience from both the child and the parents and, and some research in there too. And it's just incredible to get to see these stories so well told and, and it's, it's, it's an incredible book. I'm so excited that you mentioned it. Thank you for that. Yeah, I assigned it. I teach a, I teach a course on um, students with disabilities. And it's one of the first things I have the students read. Oh, it's, it's a great book. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Um, it was really nice spending some time with you. Have a great rest of your day. Um, and thanks again. Oh, this was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Laura. Thanks for joining us on the More Than a Test podcast. If you found this conversation valuable, subscribe to our YouTube channel and find us on your favorite podcast platform. At Amira Learning, we believe every child deserves a chance to become a reader, and we're excited to be part of this conversation. See you next week, and thanks for joining.